Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. I'm Jeff Salzman. It's Tuesday, August 19th, and I'm coming to you, as always, from my home here in Boulder, Colorado. I'm here with Brett Walker, who's managing the call behind the scenes, and we're very happy to be with you, as always. How are you doing tonight, Brett? You there? I'm doing well. It's a beautiful night here in Boulder, as usual. It is indeed, yeah. We had a nice rain, and it's cool, and just a little beginning of fall in the air, which I always love the change of season, so it's a good night. Uh, I want to give a shout-out, as always, to Integral Life, which is the main uh, internet portal for all things Integral, and they host this podcast, for which I'm very grateful. Uh, we also host it on dailyevolver.com, my website, and on Stitcher and iTunes as well. If you're interested in following along a little more technically, you can uh, call up a couple charts that we provide. Uh, there's a link to them on your email that you get to remind you of this call. And uh, they're the altitudes of development and the quadrants of reality. So those are two charts from Integral Theory that may help you as we talk about current events, which is what we do here at The Daily Evolver, uh, both as a means of teaching Integral Theory and as a means of using Integral Theory to better understand our ever-evolving world, our ever-evolving catastrophe <laughs> that we live in. Uh, so I actually want to start tonight with something that's a little happier than, than what we might uh, talk about and we probably will talk about later. Uh, you know, we hear about ISIS. I think they did a couple more hundred beheadings today and, you know, the crucifixions and all of the stuff that's going on in the Middle East and in Ferguson, which we'll talk about both of those things. But first I want to talk about something that's happening on the cutting edge of culture, and that is the emergence of uh, a new, I think, altitude of development, I think it has integral qualities that we see in the millennials. And we've talked about the millennials before, and there was an article in the New York Times in the cover of the style section this Sunday that just brought forth some new facts that I'd like to share a little bit. The title of the article was, The Millennials Are Generation Nice. And it's about just how nice our young people are. And they're talking about the uh, Americans here, between 18 and 29, there's roughly 50 million of them. And they mentioned the Pew study, we've talked about this study before, that of course said that their generation is uh, more multicultural, more connected in terms of social media and the internet, also more skeptical of institutions such as politics, religion, that sort of thing, which is progress. Uh, faith in institutions is a structure of consciousness that has to be uh, outgrown as we realize that institutions are, you know, often lagging cultural emergence that, um, you know, are, are in many ways the last to evolve. I'm talking things like the economy, the political structures, and so forth. So losing faith in them is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, they mentioned that uh, this is another study that was done at the Brookings Institutes that shows that millennials having lived through the 2008 economic collapse, knows how fleeting wealth can be. And their solution is not 
you know, despair. In fact, they're the most optimistic generation in their time of any generation that has been studied, which is interesting. And uh, for many of them, their optimism arrives from the desire to acquire not more, but less. And in the Brookings Institution study, they say almost two thirds, 64 percent of millennials say they would rather make $40,000 a year at a job they love than $100,000 a year in a job they think is boring. And this is in their study called How Millennials Could Upend Wall Street and Corporate America. They talk about how millennials reject the presumed security of the corporate job and riskily pursue their own ventures, even if it means working out of their parents' basement. Uh, millennials uh, collectively favor companies who embrace the values of good citizenship. Uh, the Brookings Report says millennials overwhelmingly, quote, responded with increased trust and loyalty. This is 91% and 89%, trust and loyalty, as well as a stronger likelihood to buy from those companies that supported solutions to specific social issues. And that's uh, 89% agreed with that uh, statement that they would uh, buy from companies that support specific social issues. And this is, you know, that integration. I, I, I did an interview with uh, Zandra, uh, I'm forgetting her last name, the Buddhist economic uh, professor that I talked to. Uh, there's a conversation that I'm posting this week. And she was talking about the future economy and how public sector and private sector will just continue to integrate so that the best of both systems, the entrepreneurship of what we would normally think of as the private sector, becomes a feature of the public sector. And the bottom line of helping people, not just profits, which is a feature of the public sector typically, this idea of helping people, becomes integrated into the private sector as well. And this is indeed integration. Uh, let's see, 12% of millennials are faithful vegetarians, compared with 4% of Gen Xers and 1% of baby boomers. And let's see a couple other things. Oh, yes. There's a quote from, um, I'm forgetting his name, uh, Brandon Stanton. Not that it matters, I guess. But he says, I know as hard as I work, and I work very hard, that I may very well fail. And it's liberating to know that. The key word is liberating. In the age of the startup, of fortunes gained and lost overnight, of flawed ideas in need of continuous debugging and retweaking, failure is the default outcome and also, at times, the ground zero of eventual triumph. Uh, and then the... Uh, the article ends by saying, no wonder then millennials are the nation's most dogged optimists. They believe their own best days are ahead. And I really enjoyed that article. And uh, it also put me in mind of a book that I've been reading that is just remarkable. <laughs> it's a book about the aesthetics and the culture of millennials. And it's a book called Twee. T-W-E-E. -E. The subtitle is The Gentle Revolution in Music, Books, Television, Fashion, and Film. And it's written by an author, Mark Spitz. I don't think it's a swimmer. It's an author. Who says that Twee 
is the liberation from the pressure to be cool, swaggering, aggressively macho, and old at heart. And I love that. And he's a little bit um, sort of ambivalent about this new aesthetic, uh, this sort of hipster aesthetic. I'll talk about some of the premises of it in a second. But he points out that the word twee is actually a pretty derogatory term, uh, and it, uh, it means excessively affected, quaint, pretty, sentimental. And it's derived from the sound of a small child attempting to say the word sweet. <laughs> and so as he puts it, Imagine a three-year-old pointing at a rose bush and observing, flowers smell twee. Now, imagine a 25-year-old man saying the same, or a 60-year-old grandfather. Now, imagine him dressed as a vested, precocious Truman Capote in 1948. Who wouldn't want to punch that guy in the ear? So, the, the twee thing has a little bit of a backlash, but... Uh, it's getting into this, again, this aesthetic of not being old at heart. I love that. Of having an optimism and a positivity and something that is, you know, again, this is the, the sort of integral fragrance that uh, comes to me as I consider this. As we move from the sort of being bummed outness and the despair and the apocalyptic malaise of you know, the green meme and of liberals oftentimes. So this feels like progress to me. And here are some of the tenets of the Twee revolution. One is beauty over ugliness. Two, a tether to childhood and its attendant innocence and lack of greed. Three, the other utter dispensing of cool as it's conventionally known often in favor of a kind of fetishization of the nerd, the geek, the dork, the virgin. Next, a healthy suspicion of adulthood. Next, an interest in sex, but a wariness and shyness when it comes to the deed. And it's also a reaction against this overt sexualization of the culture. Uh, and, and putting sex back into more of a rarefied space that I think is really, again, progress. Next, a lust for knowledge, whether it's the sequence of an album, the supporting players in an old Hal Ashby or Robert Altman film, the lesser known in general. And then finally, the last marker of twee culture is, and this goes along with the uh, New York Times uh, article, it's the cultivation of a passion or project, whether it's a band, a magazine, a film, a website, or a food or clothing company. Whatever it is, in the eye of Twee, it is a force of good and something to live for. So, just putting a spotlight on what is uh, emergent in our culture and just how remarkable it is that, you know, cultures don't move in uh, just one trajectory uh, so that we think if the culture continues to get, if the culture sexualized, it continues to get more and more so. And it does in certain ways, for sure. 
But there are backlashes and ebbs and flows to emergence and evolution that are always surprising and, and, and fun to pay attention to. So that's the uh, first thing I wanted to point out. Oh, I also want to point out that tonight I'm eager to hear any comments or questions if you uh, have anything you'd like to say or anything at all you'd like to ask about integral or current events or the topics that we're talking about tonight. You can press 1. Brett will get to you on the phone. Or you can send a written question to brett at dailyevolver.com. Either way, press 1 or send a question to brett, B-R-E-T-T, at dailyevolver.com. The next thing I wanted to look at is, you know, it's, I think, been a really pretty good week for the Obama doctrine. And I guess I'll, I'll say right up front that anything I say about Obama <laughs> should be understood in the context that I really love the guy. I, I, I feel an integral vibe from him when I read, particularly read his speeches, read his writing. I sometimes think, good Lord, this is the president of the United States writing this. I'd be impressed if it was, you know, an integral thinker. And so, you know, just from a tribal sense, I just resonate with the guy. I, I, I always think of something that Bill Maher said about the critics of Barack Obama. He said, he's talking about the right wing, the Tea Party, the Republicans, and so forth. He says, they start with, I hate Obama, and work from there. And it's true, they do. I mean, they, they feel the opposite of me. They have a sort of a, um, a revulsion. This is true of structures of development. Obama is for sure, you know, orange-green, and I think plenty integral. But for people who are at the traditional stage of development, the amber stage or early orange uh, that doesn't feel like their guy. And so uh, I, I guess I start with the polar opposite. I love Obama, and I work from there. So take that into account. But I was really impressed with the interview that he did with Tom Friedman in the New York Times, I think about 10 days ago, where he was talking about you know his approach to foreign policy and his response to his critics on the left and right. And there are plenty of these critics. But I think it's really important to look at the facts in the ground and what's happening. And one of them is, is that we have a new prime minister in Iraq. Uh, and it's not Maliki. It's this new man, Haider al-Abadi, who is, by all accounts, a very hopeful choice. I, um, hang on here, I wanted to... Hang on, gang. I'm looking for a sheet of paper that I lost. Hang on. Well, I can't find it, but I will say, sorry, that it was uh, from an article in the New York Times about uh, Alibadi, and he was educated in the West, and he is far more a modernist. If you think of where uh, Maliki, who was the a Shiite a prime minister who was so sectarian, he was educated in Iran. He was educated in religion. This guy is an engineer, and he surrounds himself with people who are um, more modern. And uh, we have three people at the head now of Iraq in the government. One is a Shiite. This guy's still a Shiite, but he's a more pluralistic one. He was supported, interestingly enough, by Iran. 
And Iran, of course, was uh, the sort of the puppet master to Maliki, but they themselves realized that this sectarian, uh, as, as Obama said, this victor and vanquished approach where my side wins, your side loses, which was the Maliki, the old prime minister's approach, was no longer going to work. And that is a huge advance that Iran supports this new guy. As Obama said in his interview with Friedman, he said, I think what the Iranians have done is to finally realize that a maximalist position by the Shias inside of Iraq is over the long term going to fail. And that's, by the way, a broader lesson for every country. You want 100% and the notion that the winner really does take all, all the spoils. If you're going to have that point of view, sooner or later, that government is going to break down. And he explained why he didn't get into Iraq sooner and fight ISIS as it was taking over uh, the Sunni territories in the north. And he said the reason that we did not just start taking a bunch of airstrikes all across Iraq as soon as ISIL came in was because that would have taken the pressure off of Prime Minister Maliki. That only would have encouraged Maliki and other Shiites to think, we don't actually have to make compromises. We don't have to make any decisions. We don't have to go through the difficult process of figuring out what we've done wrong in the past. All we have to do is let the Americans bail us out again, and we can go about business as usual. And thank you, Obama, for not allowing that to happen, because, of course, we could go in there. Our army is very, very capable of going in there and beating the uh, insurgents back. But Iraq would learn nothing in that process, except that they can always count on us. And that's the Obama doctrine. You know, call it leading from behind. Call it no victor, no vanquished. These have both been, you know, widely derided. But I think they're absolutely true. And they're absolutely uh, a, a, a good and sound guiding principles in foreign policy. Uh, we also see that the peace between Israel and Gaza, the ceasefire, this rolling ceasefire, is continuing to hold. And it is negotiated by who? Not the Americans, the Egyptians. Again, this is progress. And as Obama said about Netanyahu, if Netanyahu doesn't feel the internal pressure, then it's hard to see him being able to make uh, difficult compromises, especially with the settler movement. And that's, again, the same doctrine. If you can't find your way to make peace uh, using your own resource and the people in your neighborhood and, and, and not counting on Big Brother to, to come in and work things out for you, then, you know, uh, I guess you get back to fighting again until you do realize that. Uh, the third thing that happened this week that I think uh, justifies the Obama doctrine is Saudi Arabia, which has been a financier of this Wahhabi doctrine, this Sunni extremist doctrine around the world, including Al-Qaeda, has been supporting and funding them, has uh, donated $100 million to the UN Anti-Terrorism Task Force. And that's a nice counterpoint to what they've been doing in the past. The other thing that happened is that last Wednesday, as the Americans were fighting to 
uh, using air power to create a safe passage for this Yasidi minority that was stuck on the mountain. There's, I guess, 20 or 30,000 of them. That the Kurds, surprisingly, stepped up. This is from the um, Associated Press. Uh, they said, in the dusty camp here, and this is on the, I'm forgetting the name of the mountain, Iraqi refugees, this Yasidi, have a new hero. The Syrian Kurdish fighters who battled militants to carve out an escape route for tens of thousands trapped on the mountaintop. While the U.S. and Iraqi militaries struggled to aid the starving members of the Iraqi Yazidi minority, the Syrian Kurds took it upon themselves to rescue them. Kurds have been rescuing Yazidis from the mountains, transporting them into Syrian territory, giving them first aid, food and water, and returning many back to Iraq via a, via a pontoon bridge. And I think that is um, also a, um, a positive step. Uh, and yeah, it, it's what happens, I think, when the vacuum of American so-called leadership is, um, is there and other people have to come in and fill it. And Again, as I've said before, that is going to embolden the enemies and it is going to create more consternation and certainly anxiety among all parties, allies and so forth. Uh, it does allow the system to work itself out. And this, I think, is, is really getting into an integral approach. And it's even what we were just talking about with the millennials, this idea of trying things, of being ad hoc. Ad hoc is a strategy actually. Responding to what is arising as a strategy. Uh, keeping ISIL so that we have the bright line of, 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 of genocide, uh, that we won't let that happen. But beyond that, uh, you people have to work this out on your own. And so you learn something. There's the, war is actually, I mean, for all of its horror, is very instructive. We see that the most peaceful place on the planet uh, was 70 years ago in ruins from World War II. I'm talking Western Europe. Uh, this is, um, uh, it's hard to watch. And, you know, if there were a, an option where we could go in and actually make it better without making it worse, I'd advocate for it. But I'm pretty convinced at this point that there, it, that there isn't that option. And that's something that appears to be a, a factor uh, that Obama believes as well. There's an article in the Washington Post by a George Washington University professor, Mark Lynch, where he cites careful historic studies that demonstrate that in a chaotic, violent civil war, and we're talking Syria here, for instance, or what's happening in northern Iraq, with many outside players funding their favorite groups, U.S. intervention would have had little effect other than to extend and exacerbate the conflict. As he, he's quoted in the Washington Post as saying, had the plan to arm Syria's rebels been adopted back in 2012, this is when everybody was arguing for it, including John McCain and Lindsey Graham, the neocons, the most likely scenario is that the war would still be raging and look much as it does today, except that the United States would be far more intimately and deeply involved. And again, we get criticism from the right, 
Charles Krauthammer had a column today where he, you know, basically did the neocon story about, I always love what George Will called it, the narcissistic policy disorder, that every problem in the world is something that Barack Obama could have avoided if he had done or said something differently. As Charles Krauthammer said here, when carrying out policies in the real world, it's nothing but tactics, tactics and reactive improvisation. The only consistency is the president's inability, unwillingness, question mark, to see the big picture. From the left, Andrea Mitchell on MSNBC says his policy is a farce talking about Obama. What's the strategy? What's the end game? When are we going to get out? Robert Kuttner in the Huffington Post writes, no president ever wins points for being Hamlet. These, again, are, are lefties. In today's foreign policy crisis, there are a few good choices. But somehow, this president needs to hold on to his prudence while finding more decisiveness. And um, I think uh, having a strategy of just keeping your eyes open, allowing things to work themselves out, stepping in when things get out of control or when genocide happens or chemical weapons or so forth, uh, that this is a strategy that I think works. It's, it's not unlike those of you who are parents who at some point realize that you got to let the kids fight it out. You don't want them to hurt each other, but you got to let them fight it out. And just one last little bit from Obama when he was talking to Tom Friedman. He says, and this, I think, really sums up the Obama doctrine and, and is something that Obama will be appreciated for in years to come. He says, we cannot do for them, and he's talking about these warring tribes, basically, what they are unwilling to do for themselves. Our military is so capable that if we put everything we have into it, we can keep a lid on a problem for a time. But for a society to function long term, the people themselves have to make decisions about how they're going to live together, how they're going to accommodate each other's interests, how they're going to compromise. When it comes to things like corruption, the people and their leaders have to hold themselves accountable for changing those cultures. We can help them and partner with them every step of the way, but we can't do it for them. And he went on to say about telling every faction in Iraq, he said, we will be your partners, but we're not going to do it for you. We're not sending a bunch of U.S. troops back in the ground to keep a lid on things. You're going to have to show us that you are willing and ready to try and maintain a unified Iraqi government that's based on compromise, that you're willing to continue to build a non-sectarian functioning security force that it's answerable to a civilian government. Uh, and I think this moving uh, Maliki out and moving this Alabadi in is a very, very positive mood. I think it justifies this doctrine and, um, you know, hopeful that things in Iraq get better uh, under their own power. All right. Again, any comments or questions? Press 1 or send them to brett at dailyevolver.com. And now let's look at the story that has been getting everybody's attention, certainly in the United States, and I think actually across the world to some degree. And that is this civil distress, the civil unrest that is happening in Ferguson, Missouri, where we have had 
uh, demonstrations uh, and protests that stem from a shooting of a young black man, 18-year-old man, six times, um, who was unarmed. And um, he was black. Of course, the police were white. And, you know, what that sparked in this society. And, um, you know, we get the sort of predictable media response from, well, first of all, the, the mainstream media is all over this story. I mean, CNN is covering it basically around the clock. A lot of, a lot of media companies are. Uh, New York Times, everybody is, is really fully on this story. So, you know, one of the upsides of this is that it's like a lot of these things, a great education. I think of the education. What education have we all gotten from watching the Middle East over these last 10 years with Shiites and Sunnis and, you know, borders and, you know, the, the rising of red memes. And, you know, it's just uh, we've learned a lot. This is this is evolution. This is emergence. People learn. And so this story out of Ferguson also just really reveals so much of what's still going on in terms of racial uh, segregation, racial discrimination, uh, and racial tension in the United States that, again, just reveals these fault lines that are in the culture at large and really arise dramatically in a place like Ferguson where we have a majority, uh, I think 67% black in the community and uh, virtually all of the police and the government at large is white. And this is an untenable situation. Um, so, you know, we get from the left, the stories focus on racism, the civil rights aspects. On the right, the focus is on law and order aspects, the looting, the uh, violence. Uh, with, of course, if you watch Fox News, there's a special focus on the new Black Panther Party that's there, and they just love that. <laughs> um, but, you know, the whole thing is quite evolutionarily potent, I think. Uh, you know, th th there's certainly plenty of evidence that shows that people can find their media ecosystem. So if you're a right-winger and you watch Fox, it'll help reify your position. You'll, it'll strengthen your position. But even if you watch Fox, they have a variety of perspectives. Uh, you know, they're still going to be right-leaning. Uh, same was true on the left. And I think overall, particularly for people who are ready to exit um, these monological worldviews, these absolutistic worldviews of right and wrong, uh, this is, you know, of course, Ch Charles Krauthammer is a perfect example of that. He literally cannot envision a world without an enemy. He's so afraid that the vacuum of power in the Middle East is going to be filled by Iraq and Russia. Uh, and he, of course, makes that case and he's right. It will be. And I say, go for it, Iraq and Russia. Uh, you know, do your best. I, I don't fear that these countries are going to. I mean, I think that that era of, um, uh, you know, two poles between the Soviet Union and the United States is long over. We're not going back to that. And that both Russia and Iran basically want to be seen and respected for who they are, for their unique cultures. That's a part of it. Of course, there's power games. Of course, these, you know, Russia and, and Iran are operating from a traditionalist point of view. I mean, that's dangerous. It's pre-modern in many ways. We have to, you know, 
watch it and, and resist it. But it's not like the old days where they're this big monolithic enemy that when we lose, they win. And that's, of course, this view that, again, we see arising in Ferguson. Tribal conflicts aren't just all overseas. I mean, there are people who look at other races, whites to blacks and blacks to whites, too, and see somebody that they don't understand, they're afraid of, is malevolent, is not treating them fairly. Uh, and this is, uh, again, something that's deep in the culture. There was a study done by um, Pew, again, that showed the wide racial divides that persist over the perceptions of fairness by blacks and whites. And this is the percent of people who say that blacks in their community are treated less fairly than whites. In dealing with the police, 37% of whites think that blacks are getting a raw deal. 70% of blacks think that. In the courts, 27% think that blacks are getting a raw deal. 68% of blacks think that. On the job, whites 16%, blacks 54%. In public schools, whites 15%, blacks 51%. So there's a huge um, difference in these perceptions that are, you know, really from an integral perspective, we're called to try to get behind the eyes of, of, of you know, all players in these kinds of situations so that we could really breathe in, if you will, their perspective, their anxieties, what they're seeing and feeling, how they're feeling about the way they're seen and responded to. And we do it for all sides so that we can, you know, just get a deeper understanding of this. There's been um, some, I think, new arisings in this uh, some new arisings of agreement between left and right. Uh, one is that the police are over-militarized. I mean, these views of these policemen in full riot gear uh, with these armored personnel carriers and these military rifles and these masks, there's something about a cop in a mask that just ratchets us back down to red. There's something that is deeply unsettling and un unnerving and enraging, actually, about uh, that um, sort of secret police thing. Humanity spent a lot of time and blood, sweat, and tears to arise out of the secret police structures of, of society into a society where everybody's equal under, under the law and, and all, you know, everything's out in the open. And this really just, you know, forget the you know, practical consequences. The, optic, the optics of it are very, very powerful. And I think there's an agreement that that is happening. And, and we'll see, you know, where it goes from here, because there's certainly a lot of, you know, power and energy towards these, you know, police using the latest technology and making themselves as safe as possible. Uh, when they're in these riot situations. But, you know, I think what we all need to realize is that as we develop, there's really less and less need to worry about internal riots. 
it's re just remarkable how civilized we are. And, you know, we talk about, you know, the cutting edge of, of millennials and twee culture and so forth. We're seeing this actually, not necessarily twee culture, but we're seeing this development in uh, Ferguson as well. I mean, this is not Watts in Chicago and Detroit in the late 60s. This is, it has you know, characteristics of that. But, you know, this is not catching on like wildfire across the country. Uh, I think both blacks and whites, I think the, what the, the divide we're seeing here, it's black and white, no doubt. But another divide that I think is just as powerful and, and integral helps us to see it is the divide between traditionalist and higher uh, and warrior culture and lower. So the difference between red and amber is going on, amber orange. And so you have, and it, it's really heartwarming to see. I love this uh, Ronald Johnson, who is the black head of the Missouri Highway Patrol. And he was on CNN tonight, and he was talking about, you know, they're hoping for a quiet night. But he was um, saying, I'm telling you, we're going to make this neighborhood whole. We're going to make this community whole. We're going to do it together. We are not going to let criminals who have come here from across the country who are, or who live in this community define this neighborhood and define what we're going to do. And it's true. This is always a problem. It was true in the 60s, and it's always a problem with peaceful demonstrations. Most people, you know, people who are traditional and above, and particularly once you get to modernity, um, peaceful demonstration is a real um, a means of, of political expression and a, an actual use of power. They're very, very powerful. But you have to be in a society that has developed a conscience. If you demonstrated in Saddam Hussein's Iraq, it didn't much matter. You're just going to be mowed down. But once a society gets to a, a particularly a mature traditional into modern, uh, that's just no longer an option. And, and so we have people and we have both blacks and whites who are flooding into Ferguson to demonstrate. There's no doubt that there are outside people coming in, but most of them are coming in to demonstrate peacefully. They're moved. They want to express themselves. They're exercising their First Amendment rights. This is the American way, and I'm excited and supportive of that. But also, anytime you have this kind of a sort of uh, disruption in the fabric of civilization, you also call forth the red. You also call forth the criminal. You call, call forth the people who are in it for the mayhem. You call forth people who are just plain old angry and they want to strike out and maybe they wouldn't otherwise, but this gives them a chance. People who are looters, uh, people who just want to watch the world burn, as the Joker said in Batman. And so the, the, these people always sort of creep in and hijack uh, peaceful demonstrations. And it's really, really interesting to watch in Ferguson as the community of, you know, again, traditional, civilized, if you will, traditional and modern on up are resisting that, both black and white. Again, this divide is not black and white. This is the divide between people who are civilized, people who believe in civic action and civic order, and people who don't. And that is, uh, you know, another thing we're watching. We'll see how that unfolds. But it's... I actually predict that there will be a lot of learning 
And a lot of waking up among uh, the black community and the white community about these situations where you have these um, cities of hopeless uh, people who feel that they're in the underclass, there's no way out, and that that's just not good enough anymore, that we can do better than that. And um, so I'm excited to see uh, what can come of this that's positive. You know me. That's always me. So anyway, <laughs> let's see. Again, any questions or comments, please press 1 or send it to brett at dailyevolver.com. I see we have a, a, a comment from Tommy. Tommy? Hey, guys. Hey, how you doing? Good. How about yourself? Doing good. What's on your mind? Good, thanks. Um, big fan of your show. I've been listening for a while now, and um, I just wanted to comment on something that you mentioned at the beginning of the show. You mentioned a statistic about millennials and vegetarianism. And so I'm wondering, I wanted to get your take on if you see that as sort of a side effect of evolving through these stages as far as being able to have care and concern for all sentient beings and that sort of thing. And especially in light of the recent big meat recall that's going on right now, um, so it's something that crosses my mind a lot. And I'm wondering if you'd be willing to talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're absolutely right that as we develop morally, uh, we basically moral development is about extending the circle of who you think is worthy of moral consideration. All right. So we start out being egocentric. So me and maybe mommy and daddy, you know, my immediate, especially me, is deserving of whatever I can get. Then I become you know, clan-centric and include more people. I become ethnocentric and include a bigger number of people. And this is where actually a lot of people stop in this world, is that they only think that people in their own tribe or their own nation, maybe, is worthy of moral consideration in the same way they are, which is why we hear about the number of Americans who died in Iraq, but almost never hear about the number of Iraqis who died in Iraq. There's, you know, certain centers of gravity uh, around that. And as we move forward, we have eventually, as we move into green, we have a world-centric consciousness where everybody is included. Every, every human being is included. And then there's actually a stage beyond that. Uh, and it starts coming in at green. Uh, where there, And of course, there are people who are, have always spiked into this moral territory in this one line of development. It may be center of gravity, you know, orange or modern or so forth. But they begin to see that animals, too, have a sentience and that they are also inside the circle of creatures and beings that are worthy of moral consideration. And that's one of the things that is absolutely happening. It's just a natural um, function of, of development as we, first of all, Again, moral development is about learning things. We learn about animals feeling pain, and we learn about the emotional systems of animals. And we have pets, and we realize, oh my goodness, there's a being in there. There's somebody who sees me, and I can see, and who loves me. And there's a second person. There's an actual we space that I can have with another animal. And then it becomes untenable to uh, accommodate these 
you know, meat factories, these huge confinements where these animals are treated as units of production. You know, they're, they're widgets in a system of eggs or milk or meat in a way that doesn't take their interiors into account. And that's no longer acceptable. Now, you know, you can go a couple ways there. One is to become vegetarian. It just actually becomes, it's, it's like trying to, if somebody would offer you a piece of, you know, if, if Hannibal Lecter offered you a piece of delicious human liver, you know, with uh, fava beans and a nice Chianti, you literally couldn't eat it. You, 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 you wouldn't put it in your mouth. And if he tricked you and you, you'd throw up, I mean, it's just no, it's untenable at that point. And that's not an, that's not a decision, actually. That's a, um, that's an expansion of the heart. And it is inevitable. And I think one of the things that we will look back on as human beings, and maybe it's 100 years, or I think certainly in two or 300 years, the idea of raising animals for uh, meat will be seen as, really? It'll be abhorrent because, you know, we'll have other ways of, you know, getting meat, protein, whatever, artificially. They're working on that now, these artificial hamburgers that, you know, and so forth. Uh, I think that's where we're headed. I'm not sure that there is, as I mentioned, the one way to go is vegetarian. The other way to go is um, eat what you kill. <laughs> so if you could kill it, you could eat it. Uh, because, you know, the world is set up. God set it up so that life feeds on life and animals feed on animals. And uh, as, as long as the animal is treated with some dignity and respect, that they're, it's certainly morally better to do that than to support the agribusiness, you know, meat factories that um, are, you know, so uh, distressing to people at a certain level of development. All right. Thanks, Tommy. And I see we have a question from Matt Z. Yeah, Matt sent us a question via email. Hi, Jeff. Big fan of the show and all things integral. I know this is a little off subject for tonight's broadcast, but I was wondering, in your opinion, is it possible for two different people from very different altitudes to get along in a successful long-term relationship? More specifically, if one party is second tier and the other is mostly at first tier, is this a recipe for eventual disaster in relationship terms? I'm very interested to hear your thoughts on this as it pertains to my current unfolding situation. <laughs> wow. Wow, that's, that's a really good question. And I, I'm not sure I know the answer. I'd be curious if anybody else has any uh, thoughts on this, too. But, you know, I do think it's a challenge. I always think of the great Rilke line, where he says that considering the chasms that divide us, it's amazing that we can make contact at all, of any kind, <laughs> as human beings. So is, I think of the Enneagram. How can a five live with a six, live with a one, live with an eight? I think of people who are, you know, uh, more scientific versus people who are more spiritual, the, the people who have different um, sort of, quadrant, you know, they're, they're more comfortable in their own minds and the people who are more activity or, you know, action oriented. 
Uh, these are always challenges in, in a relationship. But I can absolutely see that people who are in a second tier, you know, at a good day at least, uh, consciousness, can live very happily with people at any altitude. It's actually one of the markers of integral consciousness itself is Claire Graves, which is one of the original researchers of integral theory, along with Maslow and um, Eric Erickson and these folks like this, some of these developmental psychologists. He talked about second-tier consciousness as being the universal donor. That is, they're the one person in a group. If you have a group of first-tier structures and, and a second-tier integral structure, uh, that they're the ones who's going to get along with everybody because they can see. Um, it's certainly delicious for integral people to get together with other, other integral people. But I think that can be done like in any marriage. You, you, you find people who can sort of supplement what you're not getting from your relationship. And there's always uh, some aspect of a relationship that is lacking. I forget where I read this, but I, it hit me between the eyes and I thought it was true that there is uh, in any relationship, there's something that each partner feels about the other partner that they're just not sure they can live with for the rest of their lives. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's just true. There's, there's probably no option where that's not true. So, um, yeah, I guess the third thing I would say there is that I think it's also true that the higher one flies in altitude, the more responsibility you have for the relationships that you're in. So people at higher altitudes have to try harder and do more because they have more options. They have more capacity uh, in, in relating to people who are at earlier stages of development. And so it's not about being fair and the old ways that we used to think about being fair. So I don't know. There's some just thoughts off the top. And um, uh, let's see. Eloy via email. Do you see parallels between Ferguson and Palestine? Well, yeah. Uh, you know, clearly it's one tribe uh, oppressing another. So to speak, this is, you know, in, in Palestine and in, in Israel, the people who are fighting are the people who are at the pre-modern stage of development. They both think that God gave them that land and that it belongs to their people and what your grandfather and my grandfather, all, you know, that all of that makes perfect sense to people at that stage of development. And there are people at that stage of development on both sides of the issue. And they're unfortunately running the show. There are also people in both Gaza and Israel and West Bank, who are modern. They don't want to fight. And postmodern, they actually think, wait, wait, let's figure out a way to live together here. Let's, let's get this together. It's all, we're all one people. Let's, you know, enjoy each other. Uh, so there are people at all stages. But uh, when things are stirred up, as they are in Gaza and Israel, and as they are in Ferguson, then we tend to ratchet down to our more ethnocentric selves. Uh, and we do that, I mean, we, United States did that after 9-11. Uh, we do that as a country, as a culture, as a community, as, as human beings. You know, uh, there's the old saying that um, a conservative is a liberal who's been mugged. 
you know, once you get, you know, uh, sort of, in the, you realize the, the sort of chaos that is a feature of life, then you tend to contract. And so we see that happening in both of these areas. But beyond that, you know, this is way, way, way smaller uh, here in Ferguson. Uh, but um, I, th I think equally potent in terms of its evolutionary power, I hope. Okay, let's uh, hear from Jennifer. Hey, Jennifer. Hi. Hi. I was thinking about uh, when you talked about the Tweed's healthy loss of respect for institutions. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I'm a health writer, and I, so I've been covering uh, the Ebola outbreak in Africa. And it kind of, that tweaked me because, for example, um, the residents of a slum of 50,000 in Monrovia, the capital of Liberia, um, the other day raided um, this Ebola holding, holding center where they had suspected victims because they don't have them in the hospital. And they basically um, exhorted all the patients to come out or in some cases carried them out and then looted the entire building, including including in very infectious bedding. I just basically took everything out of there. But, you know, you know, without a doubt spreading <laughs> Ebola further. Right. Well they I know they did it because they distrust their government and, you know, authority and very justifiably I'm sure, because they're probably very corrupt. But man I would, you know, they, in this case, they could use a little respect for authority. <laughs> and institutions. Yeah, and institutions for their own good. And it's, it's frustrating to watch. It's yeah. so sad, you know. Um, but I also get that the whole, I mean, getting rid of Ebola is an extremely meticulous process. You know, it's yeah. finding every possible contact, isolating them for, for three weeks. It's, it's, it's incomprehensible and, and clearly threatening. So I guess it's just a tragedy we have to watch. I don't know. Well, yeah, and do our best uh, to help. And uh, but yeah, the uh, if you look at the trajectory of, of culture, there's a stage which is basically pre-modern where you actually want people to develop faith in institutions. Of course, you want to be building institutions that people have faith in and that aren't corrupt and you know, kleptocracies, which is all generally a feature of pre-modern cultures. So, yeah, for people at that stage of development, the, the next appropriate stage is to develop a faith in institutions. But then once that's consolidated, and that's in that, you know, we Boy Scout and Girl Scout, that sort of World War II thing where everybody wants to be good and government's good and every, everybody's in agreement. At some point, we realize that that is, um, has its own constrictions. But with a solid, you know, basically when we talk about millennials losing faith in institutions, they're not losing faith in institutions in the way that you're talking about where they're going to go and, you know, loot a hospital because of some um, superstition or because of some rumor about, you know, the people in there that, you know, they're prone to. They're not prone to that. And they're not going to do that. They really still do trust institutions. They really do go to the hospital when they're sick. They do call the police when they're in danger and so forth. 
But it's not that blind sort of blue meme or amber altitude faith in institutions where it, it's just, um, you know, ill-considered. So it's, it's like a pre-trans issue here. Pre and trans are sort of described in the same way, a lack of respect for institutions. But pre-modern uh, lack of respect for institutions is a lot more pernicious than postmodern lack of respect for institutions, even though they kind of sound like the same thing. So thanks, Jennifer. And I see we're rounding our time here. Uh, Brett, uh, why don't you close us up with what your comment or question is and take it from there? Sure. You know, I was just remembering how the mayor of Ferguson was being interviewed on the news recently. I think it was yesterday. He said he was surprised at what was going on because there's no history of racial tension in Ferguson. Which, you know, um, John Oliver on his show um, last week tonight was quick to make fun of that statement. He said no one should ever be allowed to say there is no history of racial tension here because that sentence has never been true anywhere on earth. <laughs> well, that's the truth. Yeah, and it really is, isn't it? And it, it, you know, my latest obsession has been the show Vikings on the History Channel, which I've been binging uh -huh. on. And, uh, you know, this, these brutal battles between, you know, the pagans and the Christians and, uh, you know, the Vikings and the Saxons. And, uh, and it, you know, made me realize that, you know, this, I mean, that, the, the way they treat each other on that show is not, wouldn't be out of place in, you know, the Middle East today. Right. No. And so it makes me think about this idea that we, we actually aspire to get rid of racism as, you know, uh, that's an ambitious goal. Yeah. And so I just thought that was some interesting context, you know, that we, yeah. that here we are, this is not something we accept anymore. Like we, we're looking at a world ahead, we're, we're envisioning a world where that will no longer be um, the truth of our existence. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and part of the reason will be because um, we'll just continue to intermarry. Uh, I saw a, a, an article this week that showed that in the last census, 8% uh, of the population, so this is well over 10 million people, changed their race <laughs> from one census to the next. Uh, you know, because, you know, they identified differently. They saw it differently. They felt differently, whatever it is. And, um, you know, that just will continue to happen in postmodern and integral cultures. But there's a stage of development that's an interesting stage that this mayor is talking from. And that is, it's sort of an early modern stage where you really do get that there ought not be discrimination between blacks and whites. You know, that, that you know, there's no separate drinking fountains and, you know, that everybody gets the, the same deal in terms of police and health care and all, whatever. I mean, everybody has the same rights, the same opportunities. And you think that that's the end of racism. Because official racism has been eradicated, and it has. I mean, the you know Civil Rights Act of '64 and so forth, and all of you know, the, it, 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 officially it's over. 
But it loses, and this is where John Oliver is, is you know, he's right. It's, it's that, that view, and it's sort of a, a view that sanitizes things. It, 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 it allows particularly white people to feel that they're not racist anymore because they're part of a system that's not officially racist. But what that does is it hides the racism that still exists in people's interiors. Uh, that uh, is still very, very much online. It's online in me. It's online in everybody listening here. I mean, it's just, we, we can't be part of the lower left quadrant. You know, uh, we can't be part of our culture and not have these karmas continue to arise in us. Now, we work them out and we notice them. And, and this is something that, um, you know, would be next, I would say, for people who are, you know, from that same view as the mayor of Ferguson, who thinks that there's no history of racial tension. I mean, good Lord. So, but it's progress over, you know, somebody who actually is more overtly and um, uh, so-called officially racist. And, um, but it's, there's a long ways to go uh, after that particular realization. All right, gang. Well, um, actually, I'd like to end, if uh, you would permit me, with a short poem that I think really um, sums up this idea that I was talking about, both with the millennials and Obama also. And that's this idea that winning and losing and you know, these big strategies and these achieving big goals and all of this is really, these are first tier structures in a way. And as we move forward, we realize that every failure is a new beginning. And, uh, you know, it's, it's about the journey itself. And it's about trying things and moving forward and so forth. And it's a beautiful poem by Jack Gilbert called Failing and Flying. And here it is. Everyone forgets that Icarus also flew. It's the same when love comes to an end, or the marriage fails and people say they knew it was a mistake, that everybody said it would never work, that she was old enough to know better. But anything worth doing is worth doing badly. And I love this. This is a new aphorism for second tier. Anything worth doing is worth doing badly. Like being there by that summer ocean on the other side of the island while love was fading out of her. The stars burning so extravagantly those nights that anyone could tell you they would never last. Every morning she was asleep in my bed like a visitation. The gentleness in her like antelope standing in the dawn mist. Each afternoon, I watched her coming back through the hot stony field after swimming, the sea light behind her, and the huge sky on the other side of that. I listened to her while we ate lunch. How can they say the marriage failed? Like the people who came back from Provence, when it was Provence, and said it was pretty, but the food was greasy. I believe Icarus was not failing as he fell, but just coming to the end of his triumph. And again, that last line. I believe Icarus was not failing as he fell, but just coming to the end of his triumph. 
Thank you, Jack Gilbert. Beautiful poem. Thank you, everybody. And we'll see you next time on The Daily Evolver. This is Jeff Salzman signing off for me and Brett. Have a great week.